0: And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Mark 11, 9, and 10. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. It's so wonderful to be here with you all today on this Palm Sunday of 2021. As I think back to last year's Palm Sunday service held here, but with only clergy, one crucifer, one musician, and one AV operator present, I am thankful for us being able to worship in person. Please, indeed. It is a good and holy thing to be able to gather together for worship. I look forward to when we all are together again, hopefully sooner rather than later. Now, Palm Sunday is great. We get these awesome toys. Uh, So if the sermon gets boring or irrelevant... Our attention can be focused elsewhere. For that, I apologize if that's the case. My only request is that if you make a cross, make one for me to take home to Lily. Uh, I don't have that skill down yet, and she'll be happy with it. So uh, please help me out. (laughs) But on that note, let's turn our attention to scripture. When Father Scott asked me to preach on Palm Sunday, I quickly accepted the offer, but I wasn't sure what I would preach. My question was about which passage to preach. Our Old Testament reading is one of the most well-known and beloved passages in all of Scripture. And I could take that one on because I have a sermon on that passage in my file, so that's ready for me in my back pocket. Just put a few tweaks on it and we're good to go. But I thought better of that. And our psalm, well, our psalm contains some of the last prayers that Jesus prayed while he was here on earth. Surely that's worth a sermon. But we'll save that for Maundy Thursday. Our epistle reading is one of the premier New Testament passages in all of the New Testament. Arguably, it proclaims the most pure and highest Christology in all of the New Testament. But I don't think I'm worthy of it just yet, so I'll wait. Wait. Is there really any other option, though, to preach on Palm Sunday? Can I preach anything else but Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem? Probably not. But what can I say that hasn't been said before? How many Palm Sunday sermons have we heard and what ground is left to cover? What stone hasn't been unturned in the countless sermons highlighting Jesus coming to his people as their promised king? And it is this moment in history when everything changes because with the king coming to his city to wear his crown, a crown of thorns, and assume his throne, a cross, the Holy Spirit will dwell within us and transform us into the image of the Son of God. And all of creation will be redeemed. This is the moment that all of creation has been waiting for. What else is there to preach and proclaim? Well, that's the point of Palm Sunday. And we just heard this point made as Father Scott proclaimed in the Liturgy of the Palms on this day, our Lord Jesus Christ entered Jerusalem as welcomed as king with palms and shouts of praise. Today, we greet him as our king though we know his crown was a crown of thorns and his throne a cross. I won't attempt to preach a different message today, but I will attempt to situate its implications to our context rather than keeping it in first century Palestine. And I hope that I don't make a few trite observations that simply hint of a weak moralistic point or axiom. So with that in mind, let's carry on. Part of my preparation for this sermon included listening to Father Scott's sermon from last year. I wasn't too concerned that I would somehow preach the same sermon. And if I do, that would not be a bad thing. I was greatly encouraged and convicted by the truth that penetrated my heart and mind in it. So I definitely encourage all of you to find last year's service on YouTube and listen to it again. Even today, if you want a few days off from purgatory... If not, take your time, but still do it at some point. Purgatory is a joke. We don't don't have to be serious about that. Now, to help set up where I want to go today, a few highlights from from his sermon would be appropriate, but I won't spoil it. Last year, Father Scott brought to light that most people tend to read the story of the triumphal entry in the passion of Jesus and assume that the crowds mentioned in the account is comprised of the same people. And he isn't wrong. Two weeks ago, as I was driving to church, I was listening to a well-known preacher of quite a large church in Northern Virginia talk about how people are fickle. He used examples from everyday life, but when he wanted a biblical example, where did he go? Right here to this passage, right here to the words that we heard a few moments ago. The same crowd on Sunday that loved Jesus and cried out for his salvation would cry out for his crucifixion only five days later on a Friday morning. This is a common teaching in the church. But Father Scott argued that these crowds are not one and the same. And I think he argued that well. They are different crowds made up of different people who hold very different opinions and perspectives about Jesus. So let's take a look at some of those differences. The first crowd, well, they were comprised of Jesus' disciples, they were not residents of Jerusalem but more likely Galilean residents outside of the religious and political spheres of influence and power. They were witnesses to Jesus' raising of Lazarus, or they had encounters with the risen Lazarus and knew of Jesus' role in his being raised from the dead. They recognized Jesus as a prophet, the Messiah of God, and the divine Son of God due to the actions of Jesus, highlighted by the way that he entered Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, the continuity with Old Testament examples of kingship, the use of palm branches in religious processions. Sound familiar, Father Scott? Am I doing it? Okay, good. My notes are good. (laughs) Now, the second crowd. Most likely, they were composed more of residents of Jerusalem than outsiders. It was a group where the religious leaders were at the center and in authority and exercising their influence over others. It was a group that saw Jesus as a threat who needed to be eliminated. They were too focused on personal ambition and not focused on serving God. And it was most likely a group that had been stirred up by the Jewish leaders so that they could continue to exert power. Now, I agree with much of that. Well, I don't think I'll say I'll agree with all of it. But I think both groups had quite a bit of knowledge about Jesus. They had seen his miracles and they had heard his teachings. They knew what Jesus was up to in a sense. They knew Jesus was the Messiah of God, the anointed one who had come into the world to restore God's kingdom once again. I think it's probable that both groups knew exactly who Jesus was in a sense. I would put it to you that while they understood Jesus on a human and temporal level, they fundamentally misunderstood him on an eternal level, more so the second crowd than the first. But that misunderstanding was there with them as well. Now Jesus is partly to blame for this. If we read about the account of Jesus' life in the ministry, of his life and ministry in the Gospel of Mark, we'll pick up on what has been termed the messianic secret. The messianic secret can be characterized as Jesus' attempt to keep others, including his own disciples and demons, from spreading the word about his messianic identity and role. He even taught in ways that made figuring him out difficult. By way of example, think of your response if you went to Jesus and said, Jesus, I'm ready to follow you wherever you go. And his reply is, Foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So, is that a yes? Do you want me as your disciple, Jesus? Or should I another day? It's not clear. I think it's safe to say, actually, that Jesus lived, taught, and thrived in ambiguity. What does he say to Pilate when Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? You've said so. In fact, if we read through the first eight chapters of Mark, there are no less than seven examples of Jesus attempting to keep his true identity from getting around. Spoiler alert, it didn't work. In Mark 1.34, we read, and he, Jesus, healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. In Mark 3, 11 and 12, we read, And whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. In Mark's account of Jesus healing a deaf and mute man, he tells us, And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. I think it's safe to say that a pattern is developing here. The culmination of Jesus wanting to keep his identity secret comes in Mark 8, where we read of, G- of Peter's confession as Jesus of Jesus as the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. We know this story well. Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? They reply with, well, some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah or one of the prophets. Jesus comes back with, but who do you say that I am? Peter pipes up, you are the Christ, the anointed one. In other words, you are the Messiah. You are the one who will deliver us. And in Mark's account of this event, Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Not sure if that's the evangelistic strategy we want to go for. But perhaps we could show some some grace to these crowds if they misunderstood Jesus' true identity and mission in this world. Would we want to claim that we fully understand Jesus' identity and mission? I think we know the answer to that question. Well, what did they properly understand about him? What did they misunderstand about him? In short, they properly understood him to be a prophet, the Messiah who would deliver or save them. They even understood him to be the son of God. But they did not understand his way of explaining the kingdom of God and its economy. Their world was not a world in which the suffering were exalted. It was not a world in which the poor were the blessed ones. It was not a world in which a theology of suffering would result in an understanding that it was through suffering and self-sacrificial love that the world would be put to rights. Their world was one in which might makes right. It was one in which the wealthy called the shots and were exemplars of God's blessings. It was one in which the victory of God's Messiah would not suffer and die but con- and, and go on to conquer foreign occupiers in order to bring about God's salvation. That's not how it worked. In his book, Surprised by Hope, N.T. Wright puts it this way. But the disciples, as the gospels insist over and over, simply couldn't understand what Jesus was saying. The last thing they imagined was, with, was that this kingdom bringer, this Jesus they were coming to believe might be God's Messiah, would actually die at the hands of the pagan occupying forces. At no point do we get even a hint of anyone saying, well, that's all right. He's got to go and die to save us, and then he'll rise again soon after. When Jesus was crucified, every single disciple knew what that meant. We backed the wrong horse. The game is over. Whatever their expectations and however Jesus had been trying to redefine those expectations, as far as they were concerned, hope had crumbled into ashes. They knew they were lucky to escape with their own lives. They misunderstood the fact that God's kingdom turns the kingdoms of this world upside down and ushers in a complete overhaul of power structures and influence. It is through love, grace, generosity, humility, faithfulness, kindness, patience, endurance, and even suffering that God's kingdom operates. I'm reminded of this in the words of the Anglican hymn, I vow to thee my country, a hymn in which two countries are described. The second verse describes God's kingdom in the following words. And there's another country I've heard of long ago, most dear to them that love her, Most great to them that know. We may not count her armies. We may not see her king. Her fortress is a faithful heart. Her pride is suffering. And soul by soul and silently, her shining bounds increase. And her ways are ways of gentleness. And all her paths are peace. Loved ones, this is how we are to view Jesus and his mission. This is how we are to understand God's economy. It's not based on ambition, power, and strength. It's based on faithfulness, gentleness, mercy, suffering, and divine peace. Now, I think there's more going on with the two crowds than we often realize. I find myself crying out for what both crowds were wanting, It wasn't only deliverance on one hand and elimination on the other. On a deeper level, I think they were crying out for the same thing. To be sure the means of achieving it were different. You see, I think they were crying out for a return to normalcy. Now again, normalcy to both crowds looked different and meant something different, but it was a return to normalcy that they were seeking. Now, this is part of the DNA of the Jewish people. Did they not want to return to normal when God rescued them from Pharaoh and brought them out of Egypt? It didn't take long for them to grumble against Moses and long for the better food and surroundings they enjoyed while slaves in Egypt. This longing for for the normal was not a new thing for them. And what did a return to normalcy for a first century Jew living in Palestine look like? Well, it looked like freedom from oppression, freedom from the Roman occupiers, the ability to keep more of their money rather than paying taxes to fund a pagan empire that kept a heavy foot on their necks. It looked, sounded, smelled, tasted, and even felt comfortable, familiar, and safe. Hopefully by now, The question that needs to be asked has been brought before us today. And the question is not how should we be like the people in the first crowd? I will rarely tell you to be like anyone in the Bible, except for Jesus, our Holy Mother, the Blessed Virgin Mary, and perhaps St. Paul. Instead, I would ask how do we see ourselves in the people of the first crowd? How are we seeking a return to normal? Now, this is quite relevant for our context today. We are longing to return to normal during a time of COVID. But what does that even mean and look like? Normal church? Normal work? Normal school? Normal hobbies and sports and activities? Normal ways of traveling? But what really is normal? And to whom? What of our former normality is worth keeping? Surely we don't want everything to go back the way it was just over a year ago. I was struck this week by a political cartoon I saw online. It had two panels with the husband and wife in their kitchen. In the first panel, the husband was reading the newspaper with the headline stating, COVID cases down. And he tells his wife, the good news is we're getting back to normal. And she asked for the bad news. Well, in the second panel, he's turned the page of the newspaper and the headline now reads mass shootings. And he replies to her question of the bad news with, we're getting back to normal. Last week, we prayed for victims in Atlanta. Today, we pray for victims in Colorado and victims in Virginia Beach. I struggle with this. What does normal look like? What does it really look like? What do we really want? More importantly, what does God want? What is God telling us to go back to? But this is where we find ourselves today. We're in a delicate and difficult time of trying to figure out exactly what we want to return to and what we want to leave behind. The answers and paths forward are not as clear as we would like. And that induces fear, anxiety, and stress into our lives. It's truly an understatement to say that we're living in troublesome times. And I'm only speaking of the temporal world. To think of this in eternal terms and ask how we are seeking to return to normal in our life with God is the more pressing question. And that's our question for today. Where are we telling God that we want to go back to what is safe, comfortable, and familiar? Where are we telling God that we want to go back to what is normal? You see, God is always moving forward and his kingdom is ever advancing and never retreating. We might shrink back from the task, but our Lord does not. I think this is partially what Jesus meant when he declared to his apostles that the gates of death shall not prevail against his church. Gates are meant for those playing defense. Our Lord Jesus and his church are on offense. In God's kingdom, there is no returning to normal. There's only walking ahead with our good shepherd, leading from the front. Surely when we stray and go back, he comes and retrieves us. But he does not give us the option of staying where we are. He only says, follow me. Now, I know this can be scary for us. We don't have all the answers. We don't know everything. And God doesn't give us all of the answers or tell us everything. A passage of scripture that I find to be one of the most comforting and discomforting at the same time is Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. Speaking through Isaiah, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. It's comforting to me because I know that God is the one who knows all and his ways are the better ways. But it's discomforting to me because I know that I don't know what he knows and my ways are lacking. It forces me to trust and in my sinfulness, I have trust issues. But that's what this is all about. In God's plan of redemption to reunite heaven and earth where justice, righteousness, holiness, grace, love, and mercy, where those reign, those are the currency of his kingdom. And we only get there by trusting in his Messiah, in his king. There is no other way. So today... As we greet our king, and he tells us to follow him. As you come forward in a few minutes to receive your king in the holy mysteries. Let us pray that he will give us what we have not. He will teach us what we know not. And he will make us what we are not. For this is our destiny. May we give all glory, laud, and honor. To the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.